Hello, I'm Miles Channels, and this is the State of Play SA, discussing sports law and the business of sport in South Africa and worldwide. Welcome to this, the second episode of the State of Play SA. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It's been quite a couple of weeks in South Africa. I hope everyone listening is safe and healthy and well, and that your spirits are up, no pun intended, with alcohol sales having come back. It's an exciting time in rugby with the Lions series, Springboks Lions series having just started. So I think it's appropriate that we'll be talking rugby today and South African rugby. The South African Rugby Union, also known as SARU and SA Rugby, which is the national association that runs rugby in South Africa, is negotiating with private equity investors and is reportedly on the cusp of a deal to sell a share of the commercial revenue that it generates to a private equity firm. This is a big move by Saru and one in keeping with international trends in rugby and in sport generally. It's a controversial issue, the sale of rights in Saru assets to private investors. There are benefits and drawbacks of private investments in what is the national game and in the Springboks, the national team which is Saru's biggest commercial property. And there are a lot of questions that it brings up. There's also been an increase in the prominence of commercial entities in the South African franchises in recent months and years, particularly since 2016, which I'll get into. In this episode, we'll discuss who or what private equity firms are, the ins and outs of how investments of this nature work, the role these firms play in global sport and the ways that they add value in a commercial and a sporting sense, and what an investment by private equity means for the Springboks, for Saru, and for South African rugby more broadly. This comes at a time when SA Rugby has moved its four main franchises to Northern Hemisphere competition. They'll now compete in the United Rugby Championship, the URC, which is the successor to the Pro 14. Developments on the private equity front seem to be a big part of this move, as we'll discuss. It also appears that there is a likelihood that the Springboks will compete in the Six Nations sooner rather than later. In part two, we'll have a look at what the numbers say about the move north in business terms. We'll have a look at the financial state of South African rugby and why there seem to be a need to jump on the private equity bandwagon. In part two, we'll delve into the ownership structures of the franchises and touch on how some of these setups might be changing soon. Western Province, for example. We'll discuss the Bulls. What's the ownership setup at the Bulls? How do African Rainbow Capital and Remgro and their respective figureheads, Mrs. Motsepe and, and Rupert, add value and influence the running of, of the franchise? We'll discuss the Sharks. MVM Holdings have a central role in rugby in Durban. Who are they? And how exactly will they influence business at the Sharks? And we'll take a look at the differing fortunes of the Lions and the Southern Kings under private equity ownership. We'll get into all of this. First things first, let's take a look at the role of private equity in sport and in the rugby industry, at how deals between sports bodies and equity investors work, and at the upsurge in recent years in deals of this nature, and why we're seeing a spike in private equity acquisitions in the sports industry during the pandemic. Private equity is the ownership interest or capital investment in the form of the sale of equity in an entity that is not publicly listed or traded. So if there's an investment through equity and in a private company, that would be deemed as private equity. 
But we need to distinguish between private equity as a form of investment and private equity as a business model. In other words, a particular manner of doing business. When we talk about private equity as a business model, the typical approach, as was described to me by a friend of mine who works for a prominent firm in that area, is to take other people's money, invest it in a private company, strip out costs, the investor might replace or restructure management, boost profits, and then sell the business and make a profit. It's common to see arrangements where when the private equity firm sells the company, the firm takes a cut of the gross profit, typically 20%, without necessarily sharing in periodic profits. There are arrangements, though, where the investors acquire a stake in a particular asset or revenue stream, for example, 15 to 20%, for an upfront lump sum, as opposed to buying an entity outright or buying an interest in an entity. And then the investor receives a corresponding share in profits during the subsistence of their investment. In essence, a dividend. This type of investment, the latter one, is increasingly common in the sports industry where firms will purchase a stake in commercial revenue streams. Firms like CVC Capital Partners, who are the Luxembourg-based global private equity outfit, who are in talks with SA Rugby currently, and who will be coming up a lot in, in this episode, have gained a foothold in rugby by buying minority shares in rugby assets, as we'll discuss. Private equity firms' modus operandi is centered on return on investment, ROI. In sport, this involves improving competitions, maximizing commercial revenue, including through ramping up revenue from media rights, chiefly broadcast rights, for example, through their collective sale, and improving match day and commercial revenue, and also scaling up brand exposure through digital media, and so on. Once value and revenue has been increased sufficiently in this manner, the next move is to, instead of generally, instead of holding on to the asset, either sell the stake to somebody else or back to the original seller, the rights holder, or the shareholders could get together and decide to publicly list the company. An important question that arises is who the, the future commercial partners will be once the investor moves on. Private equity firms adopt an unsentimental approach as, of course, their business is grounded in, in profit-making. And that makes it a sensitive issue in an industry such as, as the sporting industry, which is underpinned by tradition and culture and where fans and the public play a massive role in the industry. The level of operational involvement of, of an equity investor depends on the nature of the deal that they enter into with the rights holder. In sport, the prospect of private equity investment is often sold to fans as an approach where the investor will stay out of politics and focus on commercial interests. The big private equity firms have significant investments from institutional investors, for example, big pension funds, as would be the case with CVC. Depending on the agreed terms, the investor may have to cover debt, in particular in times like this with, with COVID-19. So the investment can encompass that additional financial component to the capital outlay at the beginning. Edward Kutsia, who's the CEO of the Sharks, discussed this with Simlikiwe uh, Klobanisa for SA Rugby Mag, with, of course, the entry of a majority shareholder at the Sharks, MVM Holdings. He referred to the example, that's Edward Kutsia, referred to the example of a majority shareholder agreeing to fund losses up to a limit, being either a certain period of time or, or, or a fixed amount. There are unique obstacles and challenges for investors in sport, as I've touched on. There's the tension between 
the traditional private equity model of taking majority stakes in companies with the level of control that that brings and the need for owners, administrators, communities, and fans to have control and to maintain the integrity of teams, sports, and competitions. Many of the teams and brands we'll be talking about could really be called semi-public assets or often viewed as, as public assets because of the public interest and ownership, in inverted commas, of them philosophically or notionally speaking. The firm investing doesn't necessarily need the business to actually make money. It can grow the brand and then sell. This is a slightly different approach while still flipping the asset for profit, so to speak. You're not necessarily seeing improved monthly or quarterly or annual profits. For example, Major League Soccer, MLS clubs, franchises have extremely high valuations at the moment. Those were released in, in recent weeks by Sportico and also are reflected in, in recent reports on acquisitions in, in the league. Currently, MLS franchises are worth $500 million on average, which is grossly disproportionate to the revenue generated in that league. That's an annual revenue to value multiple for the average MLS franchise of 12.2 times, which is really remarkable. We normally see that sort of thing with the big tech stocks in terms of betting on potential and not so much proven commodities. NFL franchises, for example, have a revenue multiplier on average of 6.4 times. NBA is 7.8 and MLB, Major League Baseball, is 6.8. The the high values in the MLS are based on the, the growth potential in the league and of the franchises pending the World Cup in 2026, which will be in the US, Mexico, and Canada, and the next MLS media rights deal, which is reported and expected by many to be, be a massive deal linked to, of course, the World Cup being there in 2026, as well as the plans to expand the league. The value and interest in the MLS coincides with the league allowing private equity investment for the first time. There's a real risk that comes with the approach of buying in at these high prices because in the MLS example, many punters, commentators talk about the media rights being a bubble and that we may not see the forecasted value realized. But there's, of course, the promise of potentially big reward. And that's what attracts investors. In terms of types of investors, we also need to consider investment consortiums, which are groups of investors like MVM Holdings, who generally operate differently in the typical scenario, with their members typically putting up the money themselves as opposed to investing other people's money. These types of investors in sport that I've run through are often all lumped together as private equity when it's spoken about or reported on in the media. Essentially, the broad use of the term uh, in the sports context refers to investments by commercial concerns. So when I use the term private equity in this episode, I'll also use it in the broad sense. Investments in sports are becoming more and more common, less niche. Historically, private equity has been hesitant to, to invest in sport, but we're seeing this change. This is the case in the, in the US too, where the NFL, NBA, and MLB are really softening their stance towards ownership of franchises by investment funds. Those sports have traditionally had high net worth individuals um, as the owners and have really kept private equity firms out, certainly in terms of majority ownership. The MLS has, in recent weeks, as I mentioned, indicated that it'll be allowing private equity ownership for the first time 
that's off the back of big losses in 2020. So again, as we'll see, is a trend in terms of private equity interest in sport and in rugby. It's the economic downturn resulting from the and losses resulting from the pandemic, which has really accelerated this process. The things which are attractive to to potential investors in the sports industry, the sports industry's unique selling points, are mainly the the rare levels of brand loyalty which we see. Predictable revenue streams, for example, five-year deals and longer with broadcasters, and serious untapped commercial value in many cases. The sports industry has also been resistant to economic downswings traditionally. Also, the acceleration of digital sport consumption has played a big role in the acquisition of sports businesses and businesses in sports-related media and technology. As, for example, as uh, Holly Millwood from the UK-based CSM Sports and Entertainment highlighted to to sports pro media by the way csm is the the firm jointly appointed by the british and irish lions and sa rugby to exclusively manage sponsorship rights for the british and irish lions tour as the financial times put it in a piece from earlier this year while the business of buying sports clubs is long established with super rich individuals snapping up teams as trophy assets the difference now is institutional investors not just acquiring individual teams, but stakes in the governing bodies that run the competitions. What this does is reduce the risk of the investment. For example, the risk of poor team performance and how that can cause financial loss. And it gives the investor more control over the sale of commercial rights than the competition. On that note, interestingly, in European football, We've seen Serie A in Italy, the top league football league in Italy, the Bundesliga in Germany and La Liga in Spain have all looked at placing their commercial rights in entities, separate entities, and to then sell stakes in those entities to private equity firms. In Italy, it's also been reported that a stake in the league itself was or is for sale. There was talk of 20 to 25% shares being sold in the Italian and, and German cases. CVC, by the way, have been involved in negotiations in both, both Italy and Germany. In many areas of the sports business world, the paradigm is shifting from the federation-based model to a commercial model, and that trend really predates COVID-19. The federation model refers to the traditional sporting structures where a non-profit company or association is owned and run by amateur clubs or bodies and their elected representatives, as opposed to commercial entities which are run for profit and managed and led by business people. Rugby in South Africa and worldwide is a good example, of course, with its recent history in amateurism, only being a professional sport for about 25 years. COVID-19, together with low interest rates and generally private equity firms having disposable income, has accelerated the the, the integration of private equity into the sports industry. We've seen revenues drying up and liquidity challenges caused by the pandemic, making assets cheaper to acquire and making sports bodies more open to investment, often to the point of desperation. At this time, private equity provides more accessible funding than banks in many cases. And I think going with the money up front and alleviating debt, together with the prospect of revenue upticks, is probably an easy choice in the current scenario compared to lending, even with having to give up equity and a level of control to investors. The increased prominence of of private equity in rugby aligns with the expansion of the global game at the moment, particularly looking at the growth in the Japanese market, the introduction of rugby as an Olympic sport, the growth of the game in the US with with Major League Rugby, and World Rugby's focus on China. 
A piece by the Financial Times earlier this year referred to rugby as being valued as being undervalued by broadcasters, and it highlighted the growth potential attributed to what's seen as particularly affluent fan bases in, in, in the sport, for example, in, the, in France, in the UK, and in Australia. But importantly, this is against the background of a pre-COVID stagnation in the sports rights market following the hyperinflation, which was seen in the second half of, of the past decade, as Jack Genovese, an analyst at Ampere Analysis, put it to Matt Slater of The Athletic. Even in booming markets, we've seen a contraction. The English Premier League, for example, which has been a bull market for a number of years in terms of the prices it's commanded for the sale of its broadcast rights, has seen a rolled over domestic deal, i.e. a deal on the same terms. And they're looking at possible six-year deals for international rights, international broadcast rights, instead of three-year deals, which is the norm previously. And of course, this is because they're looking for, the, for security with the prevailing uncertainty resulting from the pandemic. Broadcasters are having to contain their costs for these reasons. Even the NFL, for example, which made or concluded a massive broadcasting deal this year for 10 years starting in 2023. Even there, there was an agreement to a limited but significant salary reduction in the salary cap for all of their franchises due to the revenues being down. So in light of all of this, it will be really fascinating to see how happy Saru and others will be with the broadcast deals that they get over the next few years and whether it will be a period of consolidation in terms of broadcast revenue as opposed to a period of, of great growth. Now let's take a look at the need for Saru to partner up with private equity and Saru's financial situation and why it makes for fertile ground for bringing in an equity partner. Regardless of whether it was the case before COVID-19, Partnering with, with private equity appears to be a necessity now for the, for the prosperity and ultimately the viability of, of rugby in South Africa in the medium to long-term scenarios, even in the short term with the further impact and unknown impact of COVID. Yuri Ru has, has spoken, Yuri Ru, the, the Saru CEO, has spoken about the necessity of finding a private equity partner. And he said he hopes the public sees the business sense in the move. As was reported by Craig Ray for the Daily Maverick, the future blueprint for SA Rugby, which was presented at the Saru General Council meeting in late 2020, indicated the need for private funding for financial sustainability due to the impact of the pandemic. Craig Ray spoke about the potential cash injection being in excess of, of 1 billion rand, which would be consistent with the comparator in the NZR, New Zealand Rugby's negotiations with Silver Lake Partners, the figures quoted there, 12.5% of 2 billion US dollars are well in excess of 1 billion rand. Silver Lake is a big US-based private equity company, which is comparable to CVC in terms of size and influence. And CVC were actually in the mix, reportedly in the mix there too, at one point in negotiating with New Zealand Rugby. COVID-19 has meant many parties on breach of commercial agreements. This is ultimately the result of, of games matches being cancelled. As Heinz Skenk put it for News24 last year, COVID-19 has increased the speed of the entry 
of private equity into the game, into rugby, as parties aren't as worried about legal agreements being broken due to the economic challenges of COVID-19. As Yuri Ru has said, Saru, which runs a break-even budget, really, was relatively well prepared to handle the impact of the pandemic in 2020 with a bit of help due to a good couple of preceding years. The help I refer to is the SA rugby industry providing for cost cutting of up to 1 billion to 1.2 billion rand as part of the COVID-related industry-wide collective agreement, which was concluded by SARU, the unions and franchises, and the relevant trade unions, which are my players and Sport Employees Unite, which involved salary cuts being implemented by SARU and by the franchises. SARU announced a 45% decrease in revenues and a minor overall loss of, of 7.9 million rand, which is a real feat and, and really thanks to the collective agreement. SARU went from approximately 1.3 billion rand revenue generated in 2019 to 710 million rand in, in 2020. Yuri Ru has preached austerity and vigilance going forward. It is a real positive, though, that they've managed to avoid widespread job losses and debt. Things will, will be starting to look increasingly more precarious and concerning with the continued effects of the pandemic and the general economic headwinds. And there's a real lack of financial security going forward. Saru's missed out on significant sponsorship and broadcasting income since the pandemic took hold. There are a few big events and competitions which, which didn't take place and some smaller ones. All of that has meant big chunks of revenue went, went missing or absent in, in 2020. The lucrative Cape Town leg of the Sevens World Series was cancelled last year. The Springboks, of course, didn't participate in the Rugby Championship in 2020. And the income derived from the Sanzo broadcast deals, which is mainly made up of rugby championship-related income, cross-subsidizes a number of expenses at SARU, in a similar manner to Cricket South Africa, with Proteas international broadcast deals subsidizing expenses. Although it's unlikely to be that unlikely to be to that level or extent of, of reliance, I would have thought. There was no end-of-year tour for the Springboks, which is lucrative for Saru. The scheduled incoming tour games against Scotland and Georgia in 2020 didn't take place. Altman Allers, who's the Lions owner, who we'll discuss in some detail in, in part two, told Rugby365.com that the sponsors and broadcasters were accommodating and supportive when there was no product on TV, but that can, of course, only last so long. In terms of the general economic climate, the trend that we've seen of decreasing sponsorship funds was highlighted by Simniki with Club Anissa for, for SA Rugby Mag. He spoke about MTN who paid SA Rugby about 50 million rand a year in the front of shirt deal, which they signed in, in 2017 and who, which has now been extended in recent weeks. But they paid about 90 million rand a year about seven years ago when they were only commercial partners as opposed to partners in a front of shirt deal. As I mentioned in the last episode, SA Rugby desperately needs the income from the British and Irish Lions tour, which is approximately an amount of 500 million rand. And Yuri Ru said that Saru will remain under extreme financial pressure until we are back to full stadiums. As far as I know, the annual distributions received from by Saru from World Rugby have not been affected by the pandemic. That's tens of millions of rands per annum that Saru receives from World Rugby. But it may be that they have been affected or will be affected in, in future months and years.
Saru is not alone. There are a number of unions worldwide in a compromised financial state, some of whom are also chatting up potential investors. Rugby Australia has been in serious financial trouble, drastically reduced broadcast revenues, the primary cause of that. The NZR, New Zealand Rugby, is also in a difficult place. The RFU, Rugby Football Union in the governing body in England, said it would be losing between 30 million to 50 million pounds over the 2020 financial year. Now compare that to this, the minimal loss experienced by SARU, or incurred by SARU. US Rugby 2, who filed for bankruptcy in 2020. From a South African franchises and, and provincial unions perspective, things have gotten progressively worse financially over the years. The provinces are collectively running at a loss for the past five or six years, according to the Daily Maverick. Because of the nature of the structures, this can end up being a burden on Saru, as it was a direct burden on Saru, as it was with the Kings. The franchises are precariously placed. They're closely reliant on distributions from Saru or broadcast funds, and the depressed economy is being felt on the sponsorship front. Something that the increasing prominence of private equity and dependable private equity ownership should do is decrease the reliance of the franchises on Saru for their survival. This dependency of clubs on central funding is an issue that the English game has also been dealing with. And there were big cuts in the funding received from the RFU by English clubs due to COVID-19. And all of those clubs were running at an operational loss before the pandemic. Super Rugby started to look unsustainable in recent years, and this is a factor in, in the financial downswing. In the past five years, Super Rugby attendance figures for SA teams have dropped off massively, and TV viewership has dropped off in, in a big way too. There are also financial issues inherent in SA Rugby structures. Changes were brought in through the 2019 contracting model to address some of these issues by reducing the pool of professional players and introducing cost constraints on the unions and franchises through salary caps and limits on squad size. The plan is for this to bring financial sustainability to the system and to stem the player exodus. But the effects of these changes remains to be seen. Considering all of this, the change in the business model in the form of the move to the Northern Hemisphere is welcome. I'll go into the, the business of the United Rugby Championship in part two. And this move should reignite the fans' interest, which ties into the low attendance figures and low viewership figures which we've seen, potentially trying to turn that around. Of course, COVID-19 accelerated this process, the process of the move north, and maybe thankfully so. And now, let's have a brief break from SA Rugby. Three pieces of content I recommend that you may want to have a look at. Firstly, Conrad Abrams wrote a piece for The New Frame on scouting of opponents and the use of data and analytics in South African football and how COVID-19 has disrupted this. The article is called COVID's Damage to SA Football Scouting and Coaching. The writer discusses the varying approaches to analytics by teams and coaches across the DSCB Premiership and the Glad Africa Championship. He also looks at the online resources that teams use and how they work, which I found fascinating. So this extends beyond simply the impact of COVID and deep into, into analytics. The 
piece also goes into how empty stadiums have presented big challenges for analysts who are used to attending matches. Analytics in sport is a rapidly developing area and one which is becoming of increasing commercial importance. And I enjoyed getting a view into how it works in SA football with our unique leagues and and challenges. Secondly, an episode from 22 June of the ESPN Daily podcast, which is titled The Supreme Court College Sports Ruling Explained. The host, Pablo Torre, speaks to Jay Billis, who's an attorney and a well-known basketball pundit. Um, They chat about the United States Supreme Court's ruling in NCAA versus Alston, which is a landmark decision in, in college sport in the U.S., It's about a half an hour discussion. The court confirmed on appeal that as long as the benefits are related to education, the NCAA, which is the governing body that runs college sports in the US, could no longer limit the benefits which a college can give its athletes. This is based on antitrust principles, meaning principles of fair competition in business. While the direct consequences of the ruling are relatively narrow, it could have far-reaching consequences which extend into the broader prohibition of college athletes receiving compensation. This comes as more than half the states in the U.S. have introduced name image likeness legislation, as it's called, to govern college athletes' exploitation of their image rights. So Jay Billis breaks it all down nicely. He's a a funny guy as well. Uh, It's worth a listen for those with some interest in those goings on. And then... Sasha Planting wrote an article in June for the Daily Maverick called Mixed Martial Arts Company Won't Go Down Without a Fight in Battle with South African Media Firm. It's about the dispute between the EFC, the Extreme Fighting Championship, Mixed Martial Arts Promotion Company, and Highbury Media, which owns SA Rugby Mag and SA Cricket Mag, uh, those titles amongst other things. Highbury media has applied for the EFC to be liquidated based on alleged unpaid debts, which is disputed by the EFC, and breach of contract, and the EFC says it will be defending the the application. The details of the commercial agreement between the parties are, are interesting. MMA is a sport experiencing significant growth worldwide. It's seen as ideal for promotion on digital media and viewing on mobile devices, but maybe the EFC is declining in prominence. It had started to expand into Africa, but it ran or has run into issues with broadcast deals on the continent. It's an informative read for those with an interest. Right, let's get back to the rugby chat. So, what's happening with Saru and CBC Capital Partners and, and a possible private equity deal? What would the structure be of such a deal? And what governance changes would we see? at Saru following a deal. And what are the concerns about what a deal with private equity could mean for rugby in South Africa? CBC have been in talks with SA Rugby for months about a deal. I believe Saru hasn't at any stage publicly confirmed that CVC they're engaging with, which makes sense as the negotiations will be subject to a confidentiality agreement. But sources have confirmed Saru is negotiating with CVC. The Daily Maverick wrote in March 2021, that according to insiders, the talk still had some way to go towards concluding a deal for up to as much as a 20% stake in the union. 
and they reported, the Daily Maverick did, in mid-June that Saru were in advanced talks with CBC. As Craig Ray reported in March for the Daily Maverick, plans have already been presented for a nine, a new nine-person board with an independent chairperson, four SA Rugby nominees, a CEO, and three directors from the equity partner. The framework is in place and has been agreed in principle. All it needs now is to conclude the deal with CVC. We haven't heard further details, and the talks might have been paused with Saru now occupied by the Lions tour. Perhaps we have a surprise announcement waiting for us after the Springboks have come back to win the series. When Yuri Ru confirmed in mid-2020 that Saru were negotiating with private equity firms, he referred to four or five firms looking to gain a foothold in, in rugby globally. The Times in the UK had reported in early 2020 that CVC and Silver Lake Partners were, were facing off to invest in SA Rugby. But of course, it's now seemingly only CVC currently in talks with Saru. Although I expect there'd be other suitors of those talks broke down. In mid-2020, Yuri Ru spoke about selling 25% of commercial rights. This is a key aspect of what we know about the deal being thrashed out. The other figure which has been reported on, as I mentioned, is a 20% stake. And Ru has spoken about the amounts for which such stakes could be sold being down due to the economic climate. Presumably, the commercial rights would be set up in a new company. Saru no longer has a separate commercial arm. In 2001, SA Rugby PTY Limited was, was created to handle the commercial aspects of national rugby, including the Springboks, merchandising, sponsorship, media rights, marketing, etc. That was under the stewardship of Rian Oberholzer as MD. But the professional and amateur arms of Saru were unified or reunified in, in 2009. Something to note on the potential CVC deal is that the U.S. publication Front Office Sports reported in recent weeks, as they've done before, if I recall, that CVC are currently, to quote them, currently seeking to acquire a stake in the Curry Cup, South Africa's premier rugby union. That's, of course, an error. This Curry Cup is not a union. Sorry, it is. But who knows? Maybe Front Office Sports has their wires crossed, but CVC are looking to acquire a piece of the Curry Cup specifically, possibly in addition to other Saru-owned assets. Yuriru's contract as CEO of Saru was extended in, in late 2020 until the end of the 2023 World Cup. So he will likely see this process through, the process of negotiations with CVC and the conclusion of a deal. There had been talk in 2020 that he would leave for World Rugby and he's been linked with CVC too. An arbitration award was issued against Ru at the end of last year for financial irregularities at Stellenbosch University during his tenure there in terms of which he's required to pay the university a, a substantial sum. It appears this has had no impact on his role as, as Saru CEO. An important aspect of a private equity deal is with regard to Saru governance structures. Yuri Ru has said that to complete the transaction of the nature of the deal that's in the works, there needs to be the buy-in of all of the provincial unions who are Saru's shareholders. It seems this is in fact a special majority of 75% which would be needed. In terms of the Saru constitution, a special majority of members is needed to sell an equity interest in the business of Saru. SA Rugby's general council, which has representatives of each of the provinces on it, makes the big decisions, the ones which affect the national game and the provincial unions. Provincial unions do have fears about the possible deal. These include, as Yuri Ru said, 
that Saru would be closing down smaller unions, that they won't look after the amateur game, and that the unions would lose control. He's confronted these concerns, saying that the rugby decisions in most deals like this sit with a separate committee, and that the holders are still the unions and federations who make the rugby decisions. He said that Saru will ensure that there's enough money to service the professional and amateur sides of the game. And Rue has referred to the use of special clauses, for example, veto rights, as a mechanism to protect the partners, both minority and majority. It's been a consistent narrative of the smaller unions and the cheaters as a, as a franchise on the fringes, if you will, about their exclusion and marginalization from competitions and seemingly from decision making. There is a view that the Springbok brand will suffer if a private equity firm invests in SA Rugby. Skalk Berger Sr., for example, said to Netvag 24 and then to Heinz Skenk for News24 that he's concerned about the representation of the Springboks as a commercial entity and the influence of an investor on the competitions teams will play in. Privatizing a national team, as he put it, doesn't sit well with Berger. He believes investment should be confined to competitions and franchises. He was involved in negotiations with private equity at Borland years ago, so he has some, some knowledge of, of these matters. It's important to note that from what we've heard from Yuri Ru and from our knowledge of the negotiations in New Zealand and elsewhere in sport, that it would be a share of commercial revenue generated and commercial revenue generated by or related to the national team of Springboks and the Springboks brand, which is sold as part of Saru's commercial revenue as opposed to any other kind of structure of deal. The Springbok emblem, by the way, was registered as a trademark by Safu in 1996, so it would be Saru now that, that owns it. Rudy Hubert, who's former Springbok assistant coach and currently the SA Rugby coaching manager, also spoke to Heinz Skink um, for News24, made a couple of valid points on these issues which had been raised by Skalkberger Sr., Paraphrasing Rudy Hubert, he, he cautioned to wait for the details of any deal before taking a view on whether it would put or could put the tradition and history of the, of, of the Springboks at risk. And he questioned whether an investor would want to tinker with the brand because it's the value of the brand, which is the very reason for the investment in the first place. In this regard, Yuri Ru has, has commented that private equity won't come in and change everything. And he's spoken about going in with your eyes open, which of course implies or speaks to the protections which one can put in place and um, the boundaries which one would set as the rights holder going into a deal with a private equity investor. According to Yuri Ru, the investor won't initially have much influence on competition structures. Although perhaps we need to take that with a pinch of salt considering what we know about CVC and and the move north. In terms of how equity partners would influence decisions on participation and competitions, Yuriru has said that they, they wouldn't have the right of veto of how you play your competitions or how you run the business of rugby. He gave an illustrative example of how an investor could influence competitions, saying, and I quote him, for example, you would not have a 16-team Curry Cup competition if there was no commercial value in it. The commercial value would be put on the table. If a sponsor is willing to pay $10 million for a 16-team Curry Cup competition or $110 million for a double-round six-team competition, which option do you think you should go for? There's no other decision than the commercial decision in their eyes. They stay out of the rugby, out of rugby decisions, 
and have no influence on selections of the national teams. They exist to drive your commercial value. In addition to where teams play, the competitions they play in, even with protections in place, a party with a share of commercial rights would, would certainly have influence over a number of things affecting the national team and the national game and thereby the public. For example, the terms of broadcast deals, which can have a big impact on fans, and sponsorship deals, which, which can cause controversy and, and division. The scope of private equity's influence and decision-making power is particularly important and, and a particularly sensitive issue in the South African context because of matters of transformation. Of course, private equity is, is prominent in Northern Hemisphere competitions, but this is talk about investment in a federation. Saru is not alone in seeking investment. As I've mentioned, the NZR have been negotiating with Silver Lake on the sale of a stake in its commercial income stream, 12.5%. Silver Lake is already involved in sport. It owns minority stakes in the UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship, and in the City Football Group, the parent company for Manchester City. The NZR is in, in trouble financially, and Silver Lake are promising massive returns. But a big hurdle to clear in that case is the NZRPA, the Players Union, which has the power to veto a deal. And that has led to a standoff between the governing body and the Players Union, who are opposed to the proposal that's on the table, which the NZR wants to go with. And there's been strong opinion coming from the public and from ex-players, like Andrew Mertens, for example, who's now involved in financial services in Australia. He's been particularly vocal on it and said some interesting things about the potential deal and about the drawbacks of a possible deal. Then in Australia, Hamish McLennan, who's the chairman of, of Rugby Australia, said that they had initial talks with CVC and with Silver Lake and with two other firms about potential investments. They've also recently taken out a loan with, with US private equity firm Ares. So, CVC Capital Partners and SA Rugby look likely to partner up. What are CVC's interests in rugby and elsewhere in sport, and what's their track record? CVC now have extensive investments in professional rugby and competitions, but not yet in a rugby union or, or federation such as Saru. In late 2018, the company invested in the English Premiership. It bought a 27% stake in the competition for £200 million. Then in May 2020, it acquired a 28% stake from the Celtic Rugby Company in its Pro 14 competition for a reported £120 million, approximately 2.5 billion rand. In other words, the now United Rugby Championship. This year, the company bought into Six Nations Rugby Limited, the corporate body that owns the rights in the Six Nations tournament, men, women, and under-20s. It bought... 14.3% of the entity for £365 million over five years. This comes out of the collective stake of the six national governing bodies. The details on this are important to Saru because the Springboks are likely to become part of the six nations set up in time. The amounts received by the governing bodies are based on their respective audience shares. The lion's share goes to the RFU and the French Federation. It's £95 million to the RFU. The FFR gets £90 million about 50 million to the Welsh Rugby Union and the IRFU, less for the Scottish Rugby Union, 44.5 million, and even less for the Italian Federation, Rugby Federation, 36 million. An important detail is that the governing bodies have retained sole voting control on sporting decisions. 
and then commercial decisions are subject to majority consent. In terms of possible big changes resulting from CVC's entry, there are talks of a paywall being introduced, which would mean the games would no longer be on free-to-air TV in the UK, for example. CVC would probably want to initiate a bidding war between the broadcasters. That's the better part of a billion pounds that CVC have invested in some of the biggest rugby assets in Europe. It starts to look a little like a move towards a monopoly or, or global control with now the potential partnership of SA Rugby. World Rugby, which failed in its own talks with CVC to fund its World League project, has expressed concerns about a private equity firm buying up assets in the game due to the level of influence they'd have and questions on their contribution to the growth of the game. There's been talk of CVC looking at a Club World Cup, which would need a global rugby calendar to happen, which is already in the works. CVC has invested successfully in other sports. The company previously owned Formula One for a decade and had a piece of the commercial rights in, in MotoGP for a period. It built up F1 in terms of commercial value and sold it for a massive profit. It was sold for $8 billion US dollars in 2017 for an almost 500% return on investment. This was done through strategic moves. F1 races were taken off terrestrial TV or linear TV and put behind a paywall. That led to a big reduction in viewership but an increase in value. Of course, rugby is already behind a paywall in South Africa and has been for a long time. Craig Ray from Daily Maverick reckons that any deal with CVC would ensure that it stays behind the paywall and if anything becomes more expensive for the consumer. That would be as a result of broadcasters and sponsors being charged more for the rights and broadcasters in turn passing that on to fans and advertisers. In tennis, it's recently been reported that CVC are negotiating a $600 million deal to merge the ATP and WTA tours, which are the top professional men's and women's tennis tours. So CVC is busy in the sports industry. There is a flip side to that coin in the words of Robert De Niro's character in the movie Heat. CVC's approach and ethics have been questioned. You could summarize most of the criticism as questioning the pursuit of profit above other important elements of, of sporting entities. In the case of F1, some of the complaints are about the negative impact on the governance of the sport, predictable results, a poorer spectacle, and certain traditional racing circuits being driven to the point of bankruptcy. Bernie Eccleston complained about the product that they needed to sell when CVC exited F1 in 2017. So it'll be important for Saru to ensure that a deal is crafted which gives it the necessary level of autonomy in the important areas and which includes effective protective measures. By balancing this with optimizing the funding and the commercial expertise provided by an equity partner like CVC, I feel a well-balanced deal could be truly transformative and, and really positive for South African rugby. So that's CVC Capital Partners, and that's where we are at the end of part one. In part two, we'll discuss the move north in detail. Does the URC make business sense for Saru and the franchises? Is it going to be profitable for SA Rugby? How does the Heineken Cup fit into the picture? What plans are there for broadcasting in the URC, and how might things change on that front in terms of what we're used to in South Africa? What role will CVC and other commercial partners play in the new competition? 
We'll look at the issue of Saru's shareholding in the Pro Rugby Championship, which is the company that owns the URC. And we'll look at whether the Springboks are moving to the Six Nations, and if so, when. We'll also discuss in part two the South African franchises, what their ownership structures look like, why things are looking promising at the Sharks, and what MVM Holdings' involvement is in Durban, where Rock Nation fits into the picture at the Sharks, what's happening at Western Province, why there's no private investment in Western Province, and how a private equity partner might help the situation there. How the Bulls have changed with Patrice Motsepe and Johan Rupert joining forces. We'll look at the Lions as well. We've had a good experience with private equity after a rocky start. And I'll also have a look at the sad tale of the Southern Kings and the part played by the greatest rugby company in the whole wide world, PTY Limited, in the demise of the franchise. And that's that for part one of this episode of the State of Play SA. Part two will be coming soon. I'm Miles Channels. You can find me on Twitter at Miles Channels. Thanks very much for joining me. We'll talk soon.